0: Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. Percy Muir's association with the Book Collector goes back a long way, indirectly as far back as the 1930s, when he met and began to advise Ian Fleming on his book collection. Here he writes about the toils and troubles of his early years. It was published in the book Handbook Issue, Volume 2, Number 2, 1951, and is read here by James Fleming. A Personal Chapter by P. H. Muir. Personal dates are not things that I am very good at, but it must have been late in 1924 or early in 1925 that I first met Evans. I had recently opened a small bookshop at the northern end of Davis Street, some 200 yards south of Oxford Street and he came in one day to look around. There was little enough to interest him, but as a good bookseller always does, he paid his footing. We began to talk. There is no one who can gossip to such good purpose as your antiquarian bookseller, and the talk is always shop. We were both newcomers to the book trade. We had both come into it from outside comparatively late in life, although Evans was a good twenty years older than I. I had a year or two start of him in actual experience, but against that my knowledge of the insides of books was to his as a grain of sand to the seashore. He was a small man, short and spare of figure. His hair was already thin and grey when I met him, and although his name was Welsh, his accent and temperament were strongly Irish. He smoked cigarettes incessantly, the first two fingers of his right hand being deeply stained by nicotine, and he had a persistent smoker's cough which attacked him whenever he broke into frequent laughter. We had both started our bookshops on borrowed capital. Even my time was borrowed, for I worked at another very distasteful job in the evenings to finance a modest household while the bookshop was getting on its feet. Evans was especially interested in books which he thought to be not yet sufficiently estimated by collectors, and although this meant that he priced them higher than they could be found elsewhere, this was, so to speak, his fee for drawing attention to their importance, and it was seldom that these books did not rise steadily in value once he had called attention to them. I had some modest ideas on these lines but I was not sufficiently courageous to experiment with the limited capital at my disposal. He seized enthusiastically on some of my ideas and said that he would be prepared to finance small experiments of this kind, the profits to be shared equally when the books were sold. This was very typical of Evans. He was not only full of new ideas himself; nearly all of them so good that they only needed expounding to intelligent collectors for them to see the point at once, and to encourage him to go ahead, but he was also open to suggestions from others, and it was always stimulating to see how he would take the barest suggestion that seemed to hold any possibility of success, fill it out, dress it up, and hand it back to you, completely transmogrified, and yet still recognisable as your own. I think the great secret of his success was precisely that he had not graduated as a bookseller through the usual channels, but had come into it as a mature literary man and a scholar, with no commercial training, but with sufficient business instinct to see that his great literary knowledge gave him an advantage over those who had learned only to supply what collectors asked for. He was an excellent example of one who, by grasping what the public wanted, was able to see what they ought to want, and to see that they would like it if it were provided for them. Regarded from the orthodox bookseller's angle, the experiment was bold, even rash, but I am sure that it did not appeal to Evans in that way at all. When he began, what he was doing seemed to him so obvious that patience rather than courage would be required to put it over. When he picked upon the Sherlock Holmes stories as worthy of the attention of collectors, there was so little demand for them that they were not to be found on the first edition shelves of other booksellers at all, and had to be sought in out-of-the-way corners. Once he found them on the outside shelves in Charing Cross Road. Yet, as he said, here was a figure more universally known than Mr Pickwick. Wherever the English language was spoken, Holmes and Watson are familiar figures, and even those who have never read a line of Doyle's writings are familiar with the name and exploits of the great detective. It all seems so very elementary now, but it was Evans who first drew attention to it. We got on like a house afar. I was a diffident and retiring young man, very conscious of my apprentice standing as a bookseller, and it was flattering in the extreme to have my views heard and occasionally approved, by one whom I soon came to regard as a very great man in his own particular line. But I had not thought of the connection as more than a very special and peculiarly personal connection between the two booksellers, until I came to him with the news that I was giving up my own business and going into partnership with another firm. He was clearly both grieved and shocked at the news. But in my more youthful and insensitive way, I rather took it for granted that the thought uppermost in his mind would be the cessation of our pleasant little business deals and the rivalry that must replace them when I should have to devote all my loyalty to another firm. I shall always be glad that I gave him no hint of what I was thinking, for he soon enlightened me. I had no idea, he said, that you had ever contemplated giving up your own business. "'Had I known that you were, I should have invited you to come here. "'If it is not too late, I earnestly beg of you to consider that possibility now.' "'This was a considerable shock to me. "'I had always regarded myself as privileged to sit at his feet "'and drink in his words of wisdom. "'I would never have aspired to become his partner.' Indeed it was, I think, more than anything the compliment conveyed in the invitation to join an old-fashioned firm that had persuaded me against what I now consider to have been my better judgment into giving up my own business and trying to fit myself into one that really had no place for me. I could certainly have imagined nothing nearer heaven on earth than being a partner in Elkin Matthews, which would have meant working with Evans. But alas, it was too late. Or I thought then that it was. In fact, it would never have been too late or too soon to break off an association which, through nobody's fault, was doomed to failure. I need not go further into that subject here, except to say that in the course of the next two years it became increasingly apparent that I was not likely to settle down permanently in the new firm. And although Evans already had two working partners by this time, there was still no one at Elkin Matthews who did precisely the kind of thing I was specializing in. I therefore decided to ask Evans if he was still inclined to take me on if the change could be amicably effected. By this time, Elkin Matthews had moved from their modest home in Cork Street to a grander and much more prominent situation in Conduit Street, and the sherry parties, which used to take place every evening after closing time, were already established. I rang Evans up one morning and said that I particularly wanted to see him after closing time, and he said to come along. Later the same morning, I was myself rung up by a bookseller with whom I was very friendly, who invited me to lunch to discuss a personal problem. I went, and my feelings may be imagined when he told me that Elkin Matthews had offered him a partnership. And as I had had experience both as an individual bookseller and as a partner in a big firm, he would welcome my advice. I ought to add that this bookseller's business ran on very similar lines to my own. He went on expounding the alternative possibilities as he saw them, and I let him talk, for the depths of my own mortification were such that I might have wept if I had tried to speak. To learn, just as I was on the point, of exchanging purgatory for paradise, that the doors had been flung open to welcome another and must therefore be closed against me, was almost more than I could bear. At last he asked me the direct question, what would I advise him to do? I at once saw that the situation was even more difficult than I had realised, for I could neither advise him disinterestedly, nor did I feel that I could disclose this fact to him. I therefore said what was true as far as it went, that if I had my time over again I would never exchange independence for a partnership, however attractive it might appear. I added, as I felt bound in justice to do, that I did consider the prospect before him much more attractive than mine had turned out to be, and that, had I gone to Elkin Matthews when I originally gave up my own business, I was sure that I could have been infinitely happier and more successful than I felt now. There was no more that I could say, and when I met Evans that evening, I had to fake up some excuse for a meeting that was normally open to me without any special reason, for I was still a frequent visitor. Some months passed, with my own situation becoming more intolerable every day, and with no news of the suggested merger. Then I was offered the opportunity to work on the continent for some years with a view eventually to opening in London a branch of the business I was to join. The prospect of leaving England did not attract me very strongly, but the proposition was a good one, and my knowledge and experience would have been broadened by it very considerably. But it was a great wrench, and risk was by no means absent from it. I decided to ask Emmon's advice. He said that on the whole he thought I would be well advised to take it on, The business to which I was going was an international and cosmopolitan one, well known and respected all over Europe. And the position I was offered, although something short of a partnership, did not rule out that possibility in the end, and was already of such a nature that I would have all the authority and independence of a partner. He finally said that he would like 48 hours in which to think it over, and after two days he rang me up to say that he now had the position clear in his mind and would like to tell me what he advised. I went to see him, and he reminded me that when I had made my previous change, he had been very disappointed that I had not gone to him. Had I anything against him or his firm, that rather than join them, I would bury myself in Central Europe? During the last 48 hours, he had talked the matter over with his partners, and they were all of the opinion that they would like me to join them if I felt free, and inclined to do so. Would I not give this very serious consideration before deciding on this other alternative? This was a great surprise to me, and not altogether a pleasant one. On the one hand, I had become more reconciled to leaving England for a time, and the fascinations of living in another country had taken hold of me. On the other hand, X had consulted me about his going to Elkin Matthews, and unless negotiations had been completely broken off, I should find myself in the impossible position of having jumped his claim. I tackled Evans on this, and he said at once that both sides had agreed some time ago that the merger would not work, and it had not been in the nature of practical politics for several months past. I then told him that X had consulted me about it, and that, although I had always regretted not having joined Elkin Matthews instead of the firm I did join, I could not possibly accept without complete assurance from X himself that he had abandoned the idea. I accordingly saw X on the following day, and without disclosing the reason, I asked him how things stood between himself and Elkin Matthews. He said that he had not been able to come to terms with them, and the more he had thought about it since, the more convinced he was that he had done better to stay where he was. This left the way perfectly clear and I went straight to Evans and told him how delighted I was. It would be difficult to conceive a less auspicious moment for the taking on of a new partner by a firm of antiquarian booksellers than the moment at which Elkin Matthews accepted me. True, the senior partners of my old firm hardly concealed their delight that I was going, and immediately offered to dispense with any period of notice, and to waive the clause which would have prohibited me from similar activities so near at hand. My new partners were equally pleased that I could come sooner than expected, whereas I, of course, was tickled to death. But it was January 1930. The gloom of the stock exchange crash in London and New York was already settling down heavily on the book trade, and optimism as to its short duration was vanishing, if it had not already vanished completely. My new firm was just on the point of issuing the most expensive and ambitious catalogue it had yet attempted, and all the signs were that it would be a major flop. This was not quite justified by experience, but it very soon became apparent that while all the ana, the curiosities, and the later editions would be swallowed eagerly by the libraries, Croesus was drawing in his horns drastically, and most of the major items that make a catalogue a success would remain on the shelves. Evans and I had a little heart-to-heart talk before I actually began work. He told me to consider myself a completely independent figure, that, while advice and consultation were always available if I wanted them, and while major changes of policy were always decided in common, I was a perfectly free agent and there would be no interference whatever with either buying or selling activities of mine. I took this with a grain of salt at the time, I had graduated in a different school, but I subsequently found that was quite literally and absolutely the rule of the firm. He also asked me if I knew that he was an ordained clergyman of the Church of England. This I did know, for he had officiated at the wedding of one of the partners and at the baptism of two of the children of another. He said he would like to assure me of his complete broad-mindedness. The only thing he would not stand for was jokes about the Virgin Mary, to which I solemnly replied that I was not in the habit of making any. I do not exaggerate in the least when I say that the new regime was a complete revelation to me. Indeed, with the rather rigorous experience of the last few years very strongly in my mind, I was sometimes mildly surprised at the easy-going methods of the partners. Evans, it was true, always arrived at a reasonable hour in the mornings, even on Saturday mornings. And Saturday afternoon was always spent by him in the Charing Cross Road, with a final and most protracted call at the corner of Newport Street. He took only three weeks' holiday each year, and then rather me by always visiting a French watering place where he could indulge a passion for the tables, at which he was a regular devotee with a passionate belief in systems. This attitude was particularly noticeable for me coming from a firm where, if I had spent an unusually long time at an auction sale, I was called on the carpet by my partners to explain, and where once, when I had spent slightly over one hundred pounds in another bookseller's shop one afternoon, the sequel was a solemn meeting of the board to pass a resolution that no one partner should in future incur expenditure on books amounting to more than fifty pounds without special permission from the board. And this at the height of the 1928 boom! The truth was, of course, that all of us at Elkin Matthews were recruited not merely from non-bookselling, but largely from non-business circles. This was both our strength and our weakness. Evans, after a short experience as a curate, had become a journalist, assistant editor of The Nation under H. W. Massingham, editor of Everyman, and for many years the writer of Penguin's column in The Observer, whence he derived his nickname taken originally from his having translated Anatole France's Penguin Island into English. At the time of which I write, he was gestating his great work on Warburton, and soon began to spend half his day at the British Museum. Trinity College Dublin gave him an honorary doctorate of literature for the book whereupon Bob Gaythorne Hardy told him not to get above himself, for there were other doctors in the book trade, including Dr. Gabriel Wells and Dr. Jacob Schwartz. Eddie Gaythorne Hardy had not previously engaged in any form of what is now called gainful occupation. He had devoted a keen intelligence and a remarkable memory to the collecting of a very fine library on the proceeds of which he had lived for several years when he came to selling it. Worthington had spent some time in the family brewery, and had graduated to Elkin Matthews by the disastrous experiment of buying a large book business in Birmingham, in which he gradually lost all interest, as well as all the money he had invested in it. His passion was the Romantic period, with especial leanings towards Sir Walter Scott, on whose bibliography he produced a work so opaque with scholarship that it killed the collecting of Scott stone dead. He might have done the same for Dickens, had not his rather wayward business instinct carried him out of the book trade altogether. I still have his annotated copy of Prime Pickwicks in Paris, and I can imagine no service so baleful for the wretched Dickens collector as the publication of his findings if the complications of the text variants were added to those of the plates, even the white-hot enthusiasm of the devotee might become cooled. I think that most of the established firms in the trade considered us a rather elaborate and expensive joke. The joke had started when Evans and Gaythorne Hardy issued, as the fifth catalogue of the firm, a collection of books relating to Dr. Johnson and his circle. I will say little about that catalogue here, for it is being adequately and handsomely treated elsewhere. But in fact, what the rest of the trade regarded as our jokes were the most serious business to us. Certainly, we did not indulge them lightheartedly. Indeed, the Baron catalogue of January 1930 and the early 19th century catalogue of October 1930, both completed before I joined the firm, are worthy of a place in any company of their kind and bibliographical discovery, both technical and of that more spectacular sort in which new titles and authors are suggested for the attention of collectors, was seldom to seek in any of the firm's catalogs. But Elkin Matthews would not have been what it was without Evans. He was the instigator of its policy, and in a very real sense, the brains and guiding influence of its activities. Individual liberty was a real possibility to us, his juniors, because we caught the flame of his enthusiasm, found it good, and did our subordinate best to feed it. But none of us was under any illusion as to the source of our inspiration and success. He was also an excellent salesman and knew exactly how to cope with the difficult kind of buyer. There was one man in particular, a good collector but one who loved to crab most things in dealers' shops and to put them in their place. He had a lovely time in most bookshops, where the owners deferred to his scholarship and great knowledge, and the air of quiet but impressive authority, he could assume. He tried the same sort of thing with Evans, but usually had to admit defeat, for even on his own ground, he was a learned Johnsonian, he was always second to Evans. His favourite gambit was, of course, that everything was too expensive and he took it especially to heart that Evans and his partners had conspired to raise prices against him. Evans esteemed him, although he never really took to him, and the two of them would occasionally indulge in erudite exchanges on matters Johnsonian of which the source, and therefore the point, would be completely hidden from ignoramuses like myself. On one particular day, however, Geoffrey Madden, for it was he, had tried Evans' patience to the full. It was not only that he had run everything down unmercifully, it happened that Evans had recently been rather taken by the effects of a new recipe for leather preservative put out by one of the leading London bookbinders. There was no doubt that the stuff was excellent, but the finishing coat of the material gave old calf an unnatural brilliance, and Madame poked fun at it. Why have you suddenly taken to covering all your books with golden syrup, he asked. On any other day, or from almost any other source, Evans would have enjoyed this quip, for that was rather what the books did look like. But with Madame, on whom he had an especial down, because he always insisted on two and a half percent for cash, it was not to be bought. Evans, however, made no immediate response but slipped out for a moment into the other room and returned concealing a small book bound in old sheepskin, which he slipped onto the table just where Madame usually sat. Presently he did sit down and at once picked up this book. It was The Character of King Charles I by the Marquis of Halifax, then an unconsidered trifle, but made saleable by Evans because he called attention to its admirable aphorisms. Madame collected aphorisms. He used to issue to friends every Christmas a booklet called A Book Without a Title, which contained a selection of aphorisms gleaned during the previous year. These were not all gathered from books. I remember one that ran. No Road Beyond the Cemetery, a considered opinion of the Bucks County Council taken from a signpost near Slough. Madame picked up the little book. Why wasn't I shown this? he asked. It is typical of your shop, Evans, to have concealed from me a book of the kind I am always looking for. What's the use of showing you anything? said Evans. You would only say it was too dear. The price of that book is ten guineas, and no two and a half percent for cash either. I'll take it, said Madame, and did, and paid for it at once. The point of the story is that when Evans slipped out of the room, he had taken the book from a pile which was ready for the next catalogue, and the price of it was to have been two pounds. He also had an Irish temper. He had taken over, as part of the goodwill of Elk and Matthews, the annual publication of a London calendar, a single folio sheet with a large original etching of a London scene by W. Monk. He had intended to abandon this publication but subscribers who had bought it every year since its inception were so insistent that Evans carried it on. Thus it was that every Christmas season we were visited by all manner of people who were not regular customers, but who came only to pay their five shillings and receive a calendar. Evans was not often seen in the shop, and when he was he usually dodged these people if he could. But sometimes he was caught, and once I saw him compelled to serve a man with one of the calendars. When it was wrapped and ready, the man tendered half a crown. Evans said the price was five shillings. The man protested that he had never paid more than half this price, and that he had been a regular buyer since the calendar came out. Evans told him exactly how many pounds he had got away with, if this were true. The man fumbled in his vest pocket, produced a second half crown, and proffered it with a remark, Of course I know you're swindling me but I suppose I've just got to put up with it. Evans, who was holding the wrapped calendar, put it behind him, rang the bell for his secretary, and said in a voice boiling with rage, This man is never to have another calendar as long as I'm here! Turned on his heel and stalked upstairs to his room. Treasure, too, is the incident of the table. Evans had a charming 18th century room in our conduit street premises, the outer wall of which curved with the building and was well supplied with windows. Between two of these windows was a huge table which was nearly always littered with books and papers which accumulated and piled up from one year's end to another. The only time it was ever cleared was when he was on holiday, and we were frequently astonished by the things that came to light. On the day in question, The table carried its usual miscellaneous load, and Evans had had a bad day. It was one of those days when everything seems to go wrong, and it culminated in the news that the printer could not supply the cover paper he had promised for the next catalogue. Marrot, our publishing director, and I were standing one each side of Evans when Miss Manson, his devoted and harassed secretary, brought in the news. Evans stared gloomily out of the window over his spectacles, worn as usual at little more than half-cock. For two pins, he said, I'd push that bloody table over. Marritt quietly extracted two pins from the lapel of his coat and laid them on the table. Without a word, and with a colossal effort, while Miss Manson distractedly begged him to desist, Evans heaved up the table and turned it on its side. Papers and books cascaded in every direction. Evans, appalled by the devastation, stared down at it for two or three moments, and then, without a word to anyone, he snatched up his hat and umbrella, walked out of the building, and was seen and heard of by us no more for three days. When he did return, he apologised to all concerned. Some day it may fall to my lot to describe how the happy and fruitful partnership at Conduit Street disintegrated. The main cause was the coincidence of the slump with our deliberate attempt to build up new styles in book collecting. I think I may say without boasting that most of these styles are now established practice. Individual books like the Sherlock Holmes stories, The Origin of Species, Der Kritik der reinen Vernunft, Tract. Ninety, Gibbon's miscellaneous works containing the autobiography, and a score of others are now commonplaces of collecting with an accepted status. Originally, they were discoveries by Evans, who knew their importance, and was astonished to find that no one collected them. As for the collecting of English literature, with capital letters, it is not too much to say that Evans and his partners, under his guidance and leadership, put the period from 1750 to 1830 on the map. They were sure they were right, and subsequent collecting history has proved that they were, and they backed their judgment in the sales rooms and in their catalogues. If the reader will examine the London auction records of Byron first editions during 1828 and 1829 when the Elkin Matthews Byron catalogue was in preparation, he will see what I mean at once. They laid out every penny they could raise on the books they believed in, and then wrote learned notes in their catalogues to show why they had done so. It was the first thing of its kind on anything like the scale in the history of bookselling, and it deserved to succeed. Up to a point, it did succeed. During the boom, Evans was persuading the new people who come into book collecting at such times with big money to spend, that it was ridiculous to lavish large sums on authors whose reputations were hardly yet established, or on books that were extravagantly printed and bound, which might be surpassed any day by the advent of a new and more attractive typographer. Especially, he said, was this true when there were authors whose work had stood the test of time and whose work was still undervalued by collectors. In this, he did good work, and work of which bibliophiles on both sides of the counter are still reaping the fruits. He put a new face on book collecting and gave it a permanent new aspect. But the momentum of the whole thing became too much for him. It ran away with itself. It was one thing, as Mr W. S. Lewis says in the Atlantic Monthly for February 1947, to issue a catalogue of 18th century literature with books priced from 10 shillings to 2 guineas, which had never appeared in any West End catalogue before, and quite another to catalogue Child Harold, at £950, lyrical ballads at £1,100, and Guy Mannering at £385. Not one of the three was sold for anything like its catalogue price. We had gone too far and too fast. Or perhaps we had not gone fast enough. If the two monumental catalogues of 1930 had appeared one year earlier, they might have been resounding financial successes as well as a succès d'estime, which they certainly were. The real point is not much affected. The sequel would have been much the same either way, for the new, rich customers we had acquired were among the first to draw in their horns when the crash came, and we had not sufficient support from the more established people to keep us in the style to which we had become accustomed. Opinions among us were sharply divided on the remedy. All were reluctant to frame the real answer, which was that there must be an end to easy going habits of the past. The only hope was in unremitting labour and short commons. There was finally a quarrel into the details of which I need not enter, except to say that it gave Evans one last chance to show his great generalship. This time he was on the wrong side, as it turned out, but he did rout the opposition at every point. To outline the strategy and tactics of our survival would entail betraying personal confidences. But I may perhaps say that the battle seemed to exhaust Evans. There were flashes of his old self when a favoured visitor called. He could expound and direct as ably as ever to a young American student who had sought out some obscure corner of English literature to investigate, and could astonish him by his encyclopedic knowledge of what the young man had thought his own private and particular discovery. But he knew that this was no longer enough. The careful watch on and analysis of figures almost from day to day, the need for caution and economy in almost every direction, the issue of clearance catalogues, which he loathed and detested, all that sort of thing was distasteful to him. How surprised and pained he was at a remonstrance that he had bought yet another copy of a book of which there were already three in stock. It was so cheap, he protested, and they would all sell in time. One of his maxims was that there was a buyer for every book if you waited long enough. The final break came when his wife died suddenly at the supper table while he was conducting the service in his parish church. We did not see him for a week after that, and when he did appear, he was a broken man. He was not given to displays of emotion, except for the rare and harmless explosions of temper, and thus it was peculiarly affecting to hear him tell of his dependence on the great friend he had lost. He always depended much upon others, and now he confided in me that he could not go on. He felt that his only hope was to try to repay to others something of what he owed to her companionship and care, he would go back into the church. He had some influence with the dignitaries of his church, but it was insufficient to persuade them to give him a parish in a poverty-stricken urban area. They realised that he was no longer young, and they offered him a small country parish in Kent. Much to my disappointment, he had turned down with indignation what would have suited him admirably, a chaplaincy to the Dame de Sark, a remnant of feudalism in which his antiquarian tastes might have blossomed. His curé was small and ill-paid, and like so many rural benefices, was encumbered with an enormous and expensive rectory. On one of the few occasions upon which I saw him after his retirement, he explained with a flash of the old twinkle that the original rectory had been exactly duplicated on one side by a former incumbent who had fallen out irreconcilably with his wife, but could not, of course, turn her out. She had lived in one of the two houses and her spouse in another. Now poor Evans had to support both houses, and of course the ecclesiastical commissioners considered it beneath the dignity of the church to permit any part of the double residence to be let off. Evans had never been a good letter writer, and once, after his retirement, when I urgently required an answer to a query, knowing that he would not reply unless I made it really easy for him to do so, I wrote a letter setting forth the query and enclosed a stamped postcard addressed to myself on which I put the two words, yes and no. Would he, I asked, scratch out the one that did not apply and post the card back to me? He posted the card all right, but omitted to scratch out either word. Eventually, after a brief period in London, where I heard of him but never saw him, he was sent to another rural parish near Ipswich. His stepdaughter kept house for him, and one day, on returning from a visit to London, she found Evans lying dead at the foot of a ladder in the garden. Apparently, he had been trying to move it, and the effort had overtaxed his heart. When I began to write this account of him, I turned over in my mind what I knew of his personal and private life, and I was surprised to find how little it was. The other partners and shareholders in the firm became personal friends. One not only met them socially outside business, we not only frequented one another's houses, but we had a wide circle of friends and acquaintances in common. Evans was the exception. I never went to his house, nor he to mine. Only very rarely did one meet anyone who knew him well, and when one did, it was usually someone whom one knew only very slightly oneself. He was, of course, a good deal older than the rest of us, and his circle had been formed largely in quarters remote from Mayfair, whether bibliopolic or social, so far as we were concerned, in fact, except for business contacts. He kept himself to himself, and his rare incursions into our private lives were on those special occasions when his ecclesiastical functions were involved. I must confess that I should hardly have felt really married if Evans had officiated, and the efficacy of baptism would have been even more doubtful to me than it is if Evans had baptized either of my children. That was merely another evidence of the fact that one knew so little of him privately. One always thought of him at his desk or in a bookshop. I cannot even recollect his once attending an auction sale. Nevertheless, when he died, although I had not seen him and had heard of him only indirectly and casually for several years, I felt a great sense of personal loss, and I realised, perhaps for the first time in full, the extent of the affection and respect in which I had always held him. That was James Fleming reading Percy Muir's A Personal Chapter and has been brought to your armchair free of charge by The Book Collector. Why not check out our Great Collector's Playlist for more podcasts featuring the biggest names in book collecting and bibliography? Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.